Never been angry with him, no. Because to be angry with him suggests that you feel that he shouldn't have been there, shouldn't have been doing it, and shouldn't have been putting himself in that situation. And, and I don't think it would have been possible for him not to be in the mountains. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Alex Moran. Alex is a mountaineer, teacher and mountain instructor. His father is the late Martin Moran who was killed in 2019 whilst climbing on Nanda Devi in India. It's worth me giving you some important context with this episode. It's a deep, heavy, soul-searching podcast that probably feels like live therapy for Alex and I. My dad died in the summer of last year and we both knew this was going to be a tough conversation to have. But at the same time, Alex and I both felt immense catharsis in sitting down together and talking it all through. I talk a little bit more in this one than I usually do. So please do excuse me breaking the don't be self-indulgent, it's not about you rule. This one is a little bit. I'm also going to mix up the pre-episode mentions and really champion the Martin Moran Foundation for obvious reasons. They're our full-time charitable partner and this episode is about Martin and the story is told by his son. The Martin Moran Foundation are a charitable foundation with a mission to elevate the lives of young people through purpose, passion and powerful experiences in the mountains. The foundation works with young people aged 16 to 18 with a keen interest in the outdoors, but due to their circumstances, they may face difficulties accessing them. They may belong to an underrepresented group with limited opportunities to explore the mountains, be facing financial barriers to adventure or have limited family support to pursue these experiences independently. The foundation provides fully funded mountain adventure programs to young people who want to explore the beauty, freedom and value of our natural world. If you'd like to get involved, head to the website martinmoranfoundation.com where you can nominate a young person for this opportunity, make a donation or fundraise to support their mission. That segues me nicely into mentioning that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. 10% of all income before fees from Patreon goes directly to the Martin Moran Foundation. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. Just like us, they're big believers in story over hype, and their written words and incredible images have been a huge inspiration for me over the years. You can find out more at sidetrack.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, deep breath for this one. Over to Alex Moran. So, off we go. Yeah. We've only been trying to do this for... Months now. 18 yeah. months or more. 18 months, yeah. Um... Logical place to start, I yeah. think, is to just introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Um, okay, so my name's Alex Moran, and I'm a mountain instructor. I always say that first, I think. And I'm a soon-to-be ex-teacher. And I think probably a bit of background is good. So where did you grow up? What was life like? And How and why did you become a teacher? And where are we? Okay, so we're currently in, in Lincolnshire, uh, my wife's from Lincoln. I've been living here the last three years. 
in the flattest county or one of the flattest counties in England. Um, I grew up originally in the northwest highlands of Scotland in a place called Loch Heron, near the, near the Isle of Skye. Um, and I suppose my upbringing was totally surrounded by mountains, mountaineering. Uh, my dad was Martin Moran, a uh, British mountain guide. Um, so we'd spend term time in Scotland and then we'd spend holidays in Norway or the Alps, every summer in the Alps, basically, since I was a baby, um, as, you know, following him around as he did his work. Uh, so it was a pretty, yeah, it was a really good upbringing, really interesting upbringing. It had its challenges, but it was, it was good. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's such a different upbringing to the one I've had. I'm definitely going to probe a little bit and go in. So who who was in the family and what was that life like and what were the challenges? So it was my dad, my mum, uh, and me and my sister. So my sister's three years younger than me. Um, and my dad, it, it, originally, the original setup was my dad ran the did the guiding. My mum would do the... Uh, cooking and the accommodation side for the clients and it was it was kind of a winning formula because it was in the northwest highlands there weren't many other guiding companies operating up there and because of its remote location it was better if the clients paid and had the full experience with all of the accommodation and everything um and people really loved it it was that personal touch that i think they really liked and the family kind of atmosphere so people came back time and time again um I suppose challenges wise I mean my dad went to the Himalayas at least once every year twice every year sometimes uh, so he was away quite a lot um and yeah I think I mean I didn't really notice it at all when I was younger too much I'm sure it was pretty tough for my mum at times you know um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't really notice it too much when I was growing up. I suppose you just thought it was normal. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was totally normal. I mean, it probably did. It probably did have an effect in some ways. Um, maybe during the teenage years, you know, uh, my dad maybe my mum was maybe coping with stuff while my dad was away, um, and it was just the kind of job where you couldn't, you know, if you had an expedition coming up and something was going on at home. There's not nothing. You can, I mean, you know, Matt, exactly this. You know, you can't. It's just like you have to separate yourself from it in some way, I suppose, and go. Okay, I can't. I have to go and do this to earn money. Um, and I suppose for my dad, it was earning money, but it was also basically doing what he loved doing. Um, and I think that was probably in his mind. My mum probably felt it as well there was he had obviously two loves and it was totally you know it wasn't like one was more than the other the mountains and the family you know and I think they wrestled they wrestled in his head probably quite a lot it's a really cheesy line but I often say to people and my wife who does get it is like I'm in love with two things which are wholly incompatible yeah the challenge is of my existence is to make them as compatible as possible yeah I suppose it's the same for you it's the same for him totally yeah I mean, he with the Alpine holidays, that was just amazing. I mean, both me and my sister have incredible memories of just running wild around Alpine campsites and in the woods and stuff. And, you know, he was obviously away guiding, 
But then when he'd come back, it was, you know, it was just amazing. It was just amazing. And I suppose that was one way which he managed to square the, you know, square it off, really. And were you managing to get out and do stuff? I mean, when you're four, obviously, running around yeah. in the campsite's enough, but... So I suppose my journey into climbing, I'm always interested. I'm always more interested, way more interested in how other people got into mountains. Because for me, it wasn't, it wasn't optional. It was just that was it you know um I suppose my formative experiences climbing were with my dad um and I think that they were often I often have memories of being really terrified and I think you know some of that was because my dad would often be climbing on my dad's day off and he would want to do something that he wanted to do which was often something quite hard and something reasonably remote or scary or, you know. Um, I do have loads of fun memories of climbing with him, loads of fun memories of climbing with him. We had some amazing adventures in winter and summer, especially as I got a bit older. But the initial experiences, when I was like, you know, nine, ten, I remember a lot of crying and a lot of kind of, you know, sitting on the belay ledge, yeah, anticipating fear and just being totally gripped. Uh, so, yeah, so it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting mix. And I think probably I only, it was only when I went out for myself later on in my teens that I was like, actually, I really enjoy this. I really like this. And then obviously from then, you know, going forward, myself and my dad did climb a lot together and we did have some really, really good times, you know. It's a quite a risky approach in a way because it might have just totally yeah. turned you off to it. Well, it, it was, yeah, it definitely did have that effect in some ways. It was, it was a real battle for me because I suppose, you know, you look up to your dad, don't you, a lot. And you want to impress them as well. It's just a natural thing, I think, for kids, isn't it? So I would obviously be really excited to be, you know, have the opportunity. I felt honoured, you know, to go out and climb with them. But then there would always be kind of the worry about, oh, we're going to go do something really hard, are we? <laughs> um, yeah, so that was, a, that was interesting. And did that style of life affect you academically? Um, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I've never, been, I've never been particularly academic. And I... This is going to sound pretty bad coming from someone who's been a teacher. I was for the last say, 10 says years. the teacher. <laughs> but I don't, I'd have never personally valued um, like achievement academically. I think it's, it's good to, I think it, my opinion on it is that if you're passionate about something, you're interested in it, then you should go full throttle and, and do that. But for myself, I think. I didn't, I kind of just fell into going to uni. It's like, oh, I'm good at geography. I'll just go do geography. Oh, I've got a geography degree. Oh, I'd better just be a geography teacher then. Um, but yeah, if I could turn the clock back, I don't have regrets necessarily. Uh, but if I could turn the clock back, I probably would. Maybe if I could tell myself, my 17-year-old self, I'd be like, okay, well, have a think what actually makes you happy rather than, it's hard to do at that age, so hard to do. But I'd say, okay, well, what, you know, what are you actually passionate about? Um, 
I think there's a lot of luck involved in those 17-year-old wonder kids finding what they want to do and running with it. At oh, totally, yeah. yeah, yeah totally. Talent, sure, but yeah. there's luck too, always. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just falling into that one thing and you're going, oh my God, I love this. And then, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what happened, so you got a geography degree, you got a teaching diploma. Was that when you moved to Lincolnshire or? No, so I got a geography um, degree at Aberdeen University and then I went and worked at um, well I went to Spain for a bit for a year um, which was fun but I kind of was teaching English or trying to teach English not really <laughs> teaching English uh, mostly just uh, messing around but then I kind of decided okay well I, I think I should probably think about a career uh, so I, I got a job at Gordonston School you know the private school in Murray in Scotland um, just as like a outdoor instructor and assistant housemaster um, and I kind of thought well I actually really like teaching so I then went to Glasgow Uni to do a teaching degree um, and when I when I finally uh, finished and did my first year I was kind of in a bit of a funk about the UK I was like oh, it's always raining it was Glasgow though it's always raining I kind of like you know I, I just sort of want a bit of adventure so I just started applying for random jobs all over the world Got a job in Costa Rica um, and it was three years there, um, which was amazing, teaching geography. So I've had loads of good times teaching and it's brought me to some incredible places. Um, but yes, yeah, I mean, I suppose going back to what I said earlier, I suppose now I maybe feel that maybe that was sort of 10 years where I could have been pushing myself in a different way. Hindsight's a Funny thing though. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I like, I'm totally happy with how things have worked out. And where I am now is definitely in a really, you know, a really focused direction towards my passions and, and what I want to achieve in life. Um, and probably that journey led me here, I would say. Yeah, inevitably. Totally, yeah. But for now, yeah, not much longer, and you can go into detail, but you're living in one of the flattest counties in England, yeah. close to Skegness. Yeah, working in Skegness. <laughs> yeah. And you've got how old? A 19-month-old, like, right. yeah, a year and a half, basically, yeah. Yeah, so life's very different now. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And how have you fallen... I mean, you know, go into as much or little detail as you want with this, but you grew up in the mountains, you've got a passion for the mountains, you've lived yeah. and worked in Costa Rica... You suddenly find yourself a new dad working as a geography teacher in one of the flattest counties in Britain. Yeah. How has that been? Um, yeah, it's definitely been, I think, so I was in Costa Rica for three years, then I moved to Mallorca for two years. Um, and in Mallorca, I kind of thought, okay, well, this is the best because there's loads of climbing, running, cycling. Um, and the job I had was the director of a secondary school. It was a new school. Um so I was there for two years and it was a really stressful job and I wasn't able to enjoy the other side of things. Uh, so, and then my dad died in May 2019. So it was all of that it was a bit of a catalyst to move back. Um, and it's been really good the last three years because obviously we've had a baby. Um, I, I was doing loads of training um, not so much in the last couple of months for uh, doing loads of training, did achieve something I've been wanting to do for 10 years in the mountains. Um, and maybe living in the flat 
fastest case in England, that actually gave me quite a lot of drive. And I think that actually really made me refocus on the mountains again. And it kind of feels like I've been turning away from the mountains quite a lot for probably reasonably complex reasons, but um, turning away from the mountains, you know, and I think my dad dying and then moving to this place has really made me refocus and driven. Yeah, and, and this isn't a surprise for you, you know, we are going to talk about that. That was initially yeah. why we spoke about doing this, but was that turning away from the mountains related to your dad dying? Or No, it was probably been, it was probably related to more, the turning back to the mountains is more related to my dad dying. Turning away was probably more related to, um, I mean, my dad was a pretty big achiever. He's a pretty high achiever in the mountains. Um, and I suppose to some extent a hard act to follow. Uh, and I, th- I suppose he was also very, he had very high expectations of everyone he climbed with, not just me. You know, his clients, I, I still get told now by his ex-clients that, you know, oh God, I went on a Martin Moran, fan, uh, Martin Moran course, you know, Moran Mountaineering course, and it was one of the hardest weeks of my life, you know. Um, so I suppose potentially that was, you know, having reflected on it the last few years, I suppose potentially that was actually quite a a factor which kind of made me a little bit of an off-putting factor into throwing my all into it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think this is probably the time to do it. So can you tell me, you know, what happened when it happened and and how it all played out? Yeah, so, so as I said, my dad's been doing Himalayan expeditions for, uh, you know, the last 30 years, really, 30 years up until he died personally but mostly with clients um and his real passion was exploration of mountain areas and you know he's really inspired by wh murray shipton and tillman you know those books who are just you know what really kindled his passion for the himalayas um and he you know he really enjoyed leading expeditions out there It gave him an opportunity to go and do unclimbed peaks. It gave him an opportunity to go to areas that he'd never been before. And Himalayan climbing anyway is full of unknowns. Uh, but then he would be taking clients, paid clients, into these um, areas which often hadn't been, people hadn't been to before, first ascents of mountains. So it was adding another extra element of uh, the whole thing, you know. And... Um, so he did that, he, you know, he, he did that for years and years. Um, and in 2019, May 2019, he did an expedition to the Nanda Devi region, which was his favourite place in the Himalayas. Um, yeah, he just obsessively dreamt about it, wrote about it. Um, it was it was incre- incredible the amount of, uh, well, the love he had for that area, really. Um, and the expedition was for some of the expedition to go and do Nanda Devi East. Um, and the on the expedition, there was also the opportunity to go do an unclimbed peak, which was on the 
you know, just a subsidiary peak of Nandadevi, 6477 metres, unnamed. Um, and the party split... Um, Mark Thomas, who was the other guide, went to do Nandadevi East with two clients. And my dad took um, himself, uh, one of the Indian um, liaison officer, and some of the other clients up to do this 6477 peak. Um, and obviously no one knows the exact ins and outs of the next stage totally. Um, but I was texting him back and forth in the tent to a satellite phone. Um, the day before, I can't remember the date now, well, that's terrible, um, 25th of May, I think, 2019, um, and gave him the weather forecast and he went to bed, last thing he said was hoping for starry skies, you know, that was it, signed off, and then um, probably about two days later, we hadn't heard from him, Um and my mum and me phoned each other. My mum and uh, I phoned my mum. And we both knew what the issue was, but neither of us really wanted to say it. But we telepathically kind of knew what was there was potentially here. Um, and obviously as time went on, we kind of, the realisation dawned that something had happened. Um, and by this time, Mark Thomas and his other two clients had come down. They were taken up in a helicopter to look at the area around 6477. And they could see a big slide uh, from the ridge, which they would have been on. Uh, again, we still don't know whether it was cornice collapse or whether it was a you know, human-triggered avalanche, you know, what, um, what the exact cause of it was. But they'd obviously all been swept down the face of the mountain. Um, into so the the ridge they're on on the on one side you've got the Nandadevi base camp valley which is much more accessible on the side that they went down was into the Pindari glacier um, which is a really even more remote area um, there was some debris that could be seen from the helicopters uh, but no one was one hundred percent sure so. At that point, you know, I knew fine well that it was a recovery operation, not a rescue operation. Um, yeah, so that was kind of where we were at at that point. Um, do you want me to, to talk about the, the rest of it as well? So probably the worst part about it was because it was so remote. Um, getting any recovery operation started was really hard obviously in the Himalayas in India there's no official mountain rescue um so they had the Indo-Tibetan border police who were assisting with the rescue um well I say rescue the recovery the recovery um so it was kind of six weeks really until we had any proper confirmation of of you know, death. Um, and they, they managed to recover seven of the bodies. Uh, but the one they didn't recover was my dad's. Um, so effectively, he was a missing person still. So that made it even more complicated because my mum obviously couldn't get access to anything because he wasn't, didn't have a death certificate, basically. Um, 
And then obviously the business, his business was, you know, there was loads of guiding work coming up. Um, and I remember, because I, I stood in for the, the days that I could. Um, so I was sort of guiding his clients two or three weeks after his death, after the accident. Um, yeah, so it was pretty full on. So what was happening in your head specifically, you know, kind of play by play, moment by moment as it was all going down? Um, obviously I was, I was, you know, cause I, I suppose I grieved fairly quickly, I think. Um, and I managed to okay it with myself quite quickly because not finding his body, I mean, not finding his body because, um, I mean, it was such a, the horror of it was quite, was really visceral because of the, you know, it was eight deaths on the mountains. My dad would have been horrified by that, you know. Um, and because we were the company who was providing the expedition, obviously we were having to be incredibly strong, organised. Um, I mean, my sister was just sitting on a laptop day in, day out. Her, her, her way was to just get, fully involved in sorting everything out and liaising with families and the far the you know the foreign embassy in um, India and everything. Um I obviously had to do these days out guiding, so I had to kind of pull myself together for that pretty sharpish. And they weren't just hill walking days, they were like proper climbing days, you know, um cooling ridge traverses and this all the all the stuff. So I had to pull myself together pretty pretty quickly but I was finding when I was on lead I was just it was it was like yeah no fairly reason not not roots well within my capability but just felt like I was going to fall all the time and uh just obviously that was just a reaction because my dad had just died you know in a climate accident and stuff but I was finding I was shaking a lot you know just yeah, it was, yeah. So that was quite, that was probably the hardest part, actually, was doing that guiding work. And I was walking in a dead man's shoes. So that kind of made it, uh, yeah. And not just any dead man's shoes. Yeah, yeah, my dad's, yeah, my dad's, so, yeah. But and I, I really don't want to push this. You know, I gave you all the disclaimers before we spoke about you don't have to go anywhere you don't want to, but the way you told me some of that story, you know, that kind of that telepathic moment between you and your mum, yeah. There must have been a moment where you thought, okay, that's definitely happened. Yeah. Intellectually and emotionally, I acknowledge that. Yeah. What was that like and how did you feel? So I suppose it's been years and years. Like, amazing. My mum's absolutely amazing because every time he went away from when we were very small upwards, she must have known. I mean, it's a... You know, it's a part of the job that that may be, may happen, you know. Especially Himalayas, you know, new peaks, um, all the unknowns there. So I suppose my mum had, you, you're kind of expecting, you, you're not expecting, you're expecting it to happen. So you've kind of, in a way, you've already kind of prepared yourself. Um, you know, me and my dad would always have a phone call before he went away. Um, 
And I suppose on a, on a level, you've, you've actually kind of already said that could be the last phone call. I mean, not that, not that he was taking huge risks or, you know, or, or he was reckless in any way, but it's just with that kind of work, he just, you know, so it was almost immediate as soon as we realized we hadn't heard, because he would always satellite phone text saying back down at camp two or whatever. So as soon as we hadn't heard, I just knew that something had gone wrong. And the fact that he hadn't, if they were, let's say, if they were holed up somewhere, I knew what the weather was like because I was checking all the time. If I was, if they were holed up somewhere, they would have just used the satellite phone. So as soon as they didn't contact the satellite phone, it's like, okay, he's he's um, either lost the satellite phone or he's he's you know he's dead. So you kind of yeah you prepared. Yeah, and there's some stuff I want to get onto, but I think it needs context around you know that specific type of Himalayan exploration, adventure, climbing. There is an element of dice rolling involved to yeah. an extent, would you say? Much more so than climbing in Britain. So I wouldn't say I was an expert on this in any way, shape or form. I've been on a few expeditions um, with my dad um, as either a, you know, a participant or guiding. Um, but there's people far more qualified to talk about the dice rolling element than me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's the remoteness that's the, that's the main issue, I think, with a lot of the, I mean, the last expedition I was on with him, we had, it was, um, Satapanth, which is like 7,075 meters. Um, and we'd established our camps right up to camp two and, we luckily just got the forecast on the satellite phone, two metres of snow coming in. So we managed to bail down to base camp and it just, you know, so, yeah, there's a lot of different variables that can go on there. But whenever I was out with him, it was always, he was always making safe, good decisions. Um, but there's a lot of pressure when you're guiding. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure anyone who, is an instructor or a guide knows that even in the UK, you can have pressures on you, you know, because you're like, okay, we've got to have, give them a good time and things. But I think it's important to manage people's expectations in the Himalayas because, you know, it's never it's never guaranteed. And I always try and think of it like that, that expedition where we failed and it was two metres of snow. It was the best expedition I've been on, even though we didn't summit, because actually everyone had to pull together um, and it was a survival situation and we managed to get ourselves and some of our equipment out, you know, safely. And that was the, and we overcame loads of challenges. And I think you've got to think of it more holistically like that. And I think a lot of people are so summit focused that that can really drive you to make bad decisions. Um, but yeah, as you know, as I say, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in it. But I would say that, you know, having seen my dad operate in that environment, um, it was really measured. But you're right in a way, if you are making those high level decisions all the time, um, it's quite wearing. It can be quite wearing, you know, definitely. Yeah, and I think like 
this is just my opinion and you're welcome to disagree with me and anybody else's, but it's that exposure element to like you go on one trip. Yeah. You know, let's say you've got a hundred sided dice and you roll it. Yeah. The chance of getting a one is low. You go 50 times, well, yeah. your percentages are starting to change. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm sure you've been in situations, I've been in situations where I have come much closer than I would like to have. And I don't feel like I've made a bad decision, if that makes sense. Like, I fell in a crevasse, but yeah. did I make a bad decision that led to that? I don't think so. Yeah. I think I just got really unlucky. Yeah, and that's that's totally true, Matt, yeah. So there's so many variables in any mountain situation. You know, it could be rock fall, obviously avalanche, and you know, you can mitigate and mitigate and mitigate. But there is, there are unknowns, and that's the nature of it. And I think anyone who goes into the mountains in the UK or the Alps or the Himalayas or the Rockies or whatever, they have to know that, they have to understand that. Yeah, and, you know, final time I mention it, but I feel obliged to do it once more with that disclaimer, like my questions might start getting slightly more difficult and, yeah, yeah. you know, either don't answer them or just be no, honest if you want yeah. to. But I'll answer them, right? You might not get the answers <laughs> you want. <laughs> I just wonder, like... You must have, you know, you're clearly sort of very level-headed, but there must have been moments where you've tried to imagine what happened, imagined his thought processes, and maybe like just those raw emotions. You know, have you been angry with him because it happened or whatever, or is it just sadness, or is there just acceptance there? Never been angry with him, no, because... To be angry with him suggests that you to be angry with him suggests that you feel that he shouldn't have been there, shouldn't have been doing it, and shouldn't have been putting himself in that situation and, and I don't think it would have been possible for him not to be in the mountains. You know, he it would have been he would have been a much, his life would have been much poorer without them. So I don't, I never felt angry with him. And for me, it feels quite fitting that he's still there. I think that's been more difficult for my mum um, and possibly my sister to accept. But I feel, I mean, my, you know, my sister, we have all spoken about it and we do all agree that the Nandadevi region, if there was ever going to be a place where dad had his final resting place, that would be perfect. So I, I, had, I had quite a lot of acceptance fairly early on. I had grief, lots of grief. I mean, you always are going to have moments, like you must have had these as well, that, you know, your, your son's born and you're like, oh God, I wish he knew his granddad. Yeah. Um, or, you know, like... A couple of summers ago when I did that challenge, which I'd wanted to do for a long time and spoken about with him, I was like, I wish I could tell him about that. Um, so I've definitely had grief, but never anger. Um, and a lot of acceptance of the situation. Um, yeah. And I think as well, my dad would have wanted to be the one not found if there was someone not to be found thank God it was not one of the seven others and their families, 
you know, we're able to have the remains back and get them home, you know. So I think it was quite amazing, really, that it was him that was left in many ways, if there had to be someone, you know. Is there any part of you that wants to go there? So my sister's been talking about this a lot. She really wants to go there. I think for, for Hazel, it's a, at the moment, it's a real drive for her. She would really love to go there. I would really love to go there as well. Um, there is a quite big, there is a huge part of me that would want to go and do the peak. I was going to ask. Yeah, no, there's a huge part of me that wants to do that, but um, it would have to be the right situation, the right time. Um, and also, I don't know how I'd feel when I got there. You know, you're sitting in camp to just about to go up on the ridge that he, I mean, the fear element would probably be very high, I think, because, yeah, I think that would be quite a big thing to overcome. But yeah, I'd love to go. I'd love to go, definitely. Yeah, God, I'm just trying to work it all out and how I'd feel, but, you know, he's there, as you've said yeah. a few times, like, that might be a brilliant thing or a really awful thing. Um. Yeah, I don't know if I'm surprised or not that you want to go. I think I would. Yeah. I mean, my sister wants to go to base camp. She wants to walk up onto the glacier. She wants to say her goodbyes to him um, in that way. Uh, yeah, I suppose I feel closest to him when I'm in the mountains. Uh, any mountains, you know, especially mountains at home. Um so I would really like to go there for that as well because I would feel... And to see what he saw is so amazing about this place as well. But there's an interesting thing, and I'm you know desperately trying not to spin this around and make it about me at all, but <laughs> I think it's, it's probably relevant that the audience know that, like, yeah. you know, you and I have talked a lot about, like, my dad died last year under very different circumstances. We're both new dads. There's yeah. a lot of crossover and similarities, and I just think, you know, if I were in your shoes, I've thought so much about legacy and what yeah. that means as a word and whether or not someone lived a good life. And I just think, you know, your dad has given you this thing which is kind of defining for you, really. Yeah. You know, and I'm fascinated by and definitely want to talk about maybe now that turn back to the mountains rather than away and yeah. how it was that his death has pushed you back there. Um, probably a lot of it's to do with wanting to be close to him. Yeah on quite a deep level, probably. Um, and probably the realisation that I have spent quite a long time in the last few years. I mean, I've always climbed, always every holiday been guiding or instructing or um, on my own trips. But, yeah, I think the, I think the turn back to the mountains being prompted by wanting to be closer to him on a really deep level, I think, definitely. Is that healthy? <laughs> um, I think, going back to your previous question, I'm very wary of, for example, wanting my, want, my desire to go to climb that peak. That could be unhealthy, definitely. But the desire to go into the mountains is more catharsis and 
it's more, it feels kind of like a warm, positive feeling. So I think that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at with it. And I've always, it's not like I'm suddenly passionate about being in the mountains. I've always been passionate, but I've just turned to face them more. That's kind of... Yeah, you're right. That is a big difference. Yeah. It's always been there for you. Yeah. So, I mean, on the subject of legacy, I think it's probably quite important to talk about the foundation and yeah, where that came from. And yeah. obviously, I mean, what inspired it's a silly question, but how it played out and what it is and what it does. Yeah. So... Once my dad died, I think quite, well, the three of us really were were quite proactive people, my mum, my sister and myself. And I think we wanted to keep busy initially. <laughs> and we also wanted to remember my dad in a certain way. And my dad hated with a passion, plaques, memorials on mountains. You know, he really, it was tarnishing the pristine um landscape not that there's no, not not there's any more but um so we didn't want to we wanted to do something which was as you say something more of a legacy really um and the initial idea came up i think to do some sort of foundation you know there's the jonathan conville courses there's a few other things that have been set up um but i'd spent his life introducing people to the mountains and um, helping other people to find a lifelong passion for them. So we wanted to do that, something like that. Um, so we set up the foundation and we were just sort of thinking of who, what group would be best to help and young people. It, you know, we all thought that it were an incredibly important group, often left behind, often discredited. Um, and I've been working with young people, obviously, for the last 10 years. So that element came in. So we decided to set it up. And so what does it do specifically? And what is its intention? And how does it differ from something like Outward Bound? Yeah, so the with my mum, having had such a long experience of running, quite bespoke, um, all-encompassing, really family-orientated, and uh, courses, we thought that running it as a kind of a week where young people 16 to 18 years old, they come and uh, they experience loads of incredible instruction on the mountain, big days, achieving goals that, you know, they'd never thought they could do before, like my dad would do with his clients. Um, and then in the evenings, they'd come back and they'd have, you know, lots of catering, lots of classroom sessions in the evening. Um, so... We wanted to follow that model um, and that's why we decided to kind of make it, you know, we're not, we haven't gone huge because I think it would lose that element of personal attention and we, we're looking for young people who have a passion, have shown an interest, have shown a passion, but they have like a barrier or a challenge which stops them getting into the mountains. So you know, maybe they've done their bronze DV. Maybe they've been on a outdoor ed day with the school, you know. Um, 
and they're nominated by a teacher and then they put an application process in themselves. And the idea is they go away from the week having more confidence to go out themselves. And we teamed up with Mountain Equipment, who, who you know supported my dad for years, um, and also Petzl, um, and several other um, sponsors as well to provide them with full set of equipment, which is incredible. I mean, so at the end of the week, these 10 young people, they go away with full set of new mountain skills so they can use themselves they go away with a full set of high spec equipment harness helmet full waterproofs all of the clothes um and then we're launching this year a bursary scheme so those that are keen and want to apply can apply to do a national governing body qualification we'll pay for it um, and we're also launching an online community where they can share ideas, ask for advice. Um, we'll do question and answer sessions and things like that. So I think a lot of the time you can have that week, you can have that experience, and then nothing happens after that. And I think for the young people that we deal with, that could be the end of it. You know, if there's no, if there's no more assistance than that week, they go away with all this kit, they go away with all this knowledge, but then because of the situations they're in, that's where it ends, and we don't want that to be the case. So we've deliberately kept it small so that we can then provide a helping hand through that whole journey. Um, and I regularly receive texts or emails from the, the previous participants, and they're asking me just, you know, what rope should I buy? They're asking me, you know, oh, um, you know, can you give me a bit of advice? I'm going to this area and things like that. So, yeah, I think... Yeah, because it's something I've spoken to other people about in podcasts. So we won't go into the deep, deep detail of it, but like yeah. I think there's this misconception that the outdoors is actually incredibly accessible. Yeah, I don't think it is. And there's, there's, there's the hundreds say, of reasons. Yeah, it's highly inaccessible for yeah. the majority of people. And we're not talking about dog walking or yeah. you know, but even going out into the Peak District for a walk is nowhere yeah. near as accessible as you might think. I mean, yeah. cars are a relatively middle class commodity. Yeah, when it comes to recreation, and as you say beyond going for a walk for a few hours accessing mountainous regions if you're going to do it safely full set of waterproofs take yeah. a helmet take a first aid you know all this stuff yeah that's a big barrier and then take the the the, the soft skills of confidence ability yeah you know and i think you're right i i, I again not gonna make it too much about me but my access point to the mountains was an out of bound course when i was 16 yeah for Naughty boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if I'd gone away having just done that, it would have been amazing, but I'm not sure anything would have happened. I then went on to do outdoor education at college. Yeah. That was what led me on this path. But I think what you're saying is is bang on. You know, there needs to be that follow-on. And I actually interviewed Elishba, who... Oh, uh, yeah, that was really good, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, for those listening to this who want to go and you know, hear from a beneficiary, essentially. I mean, she totally blew my mind, not just because she, I think she was 18, she might have been younger. 18 at the time, I think. Yeah. yeah, but just her confidence and eloquence and the way she spoke was incredible. But actually, so much of what she said, I thought I was pretty up to speed on mountain accessibility and outdoor accessibility. Nope. No. You know, I listened to yeah, what yeah. she was saying and all of the social, economic, economic, 
societal, yeah. religious pressure yeah. for her. I mean, the barriers are unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I was out yesterday with a group of um, Muslims from a community in Preston. And it was absolutely amazing. These these young people were just absolutely loving it. Um, and twice during the walk, we stopped for prayer. And it was hammering it down with rain. And, you know, the, the, they were doing their prayers in the middle of this wilderness space beside these Lake District towns and things. And, you know, those those young people have found that, like Alishba found it. But normally, in, in often in these communities, there's, there's not that access or there's not that... It doesn't have to be financial, you know? It doesn't... We're not just looking at finances, we're also looking at, you know, does the community have access in general and that's really important as well yeah and i think this is potentially risky so i'm with a disclaimer like we've got two white guys sat here having this conversation totally, yeah i'm an atheist yeah and yeah but it was what really shocked me and surprised me about what alishba said is it's not just that i can't get there it's that my community where i live you know the pressure i'm put under is why are you wasting your time doing this when you should yeah. be studying to become X, Y, Z, A, B, C from a career perspective. And that just never occurred to me. Yeah. But then I realised actually I was put under immense pressure by certain individuals in my life yeah. who may or may not have been mentioned during this yeah. conversation to like, what are you doing messing around, yeah. taking photos, join the Marines, you know, go and get yeah, a yeah. job. So I think we all face it in different ways, but there's just this conversation. It's not even a conversation, it's people ranting on the internet about, well, the outdoors is accessible and none of us are racist and all of this. Yeah. And it's like, well we're not suggesting that you personally are racist but firstly i'm telling you that the outdoors isn't accessible and yeah. we can provide lots of evidence and secondly minority communities or minority outdoor users don't feel comfortable necessarily yeah. so we do have a problem yeah um we did have a few not very many but we did have a few comments from people saying they were they were sort of being supportive in a strange way, but you know they were sort of saying, "Well, there's so many. We don't want more people in the outdoors because it's already busy enough." Kind oh, of Jesus thing. Jesus Christ. Um, you know they weren't. Be, you know they weren't targeting any one group. But my argument to that would be, well, you know, why is it the preserve of certain individuals who've had these access? You know, the access has been they've been lucky enough to have the access. Why is it the preserve of these different groups? Why can everyone, every group from anywhere, you know, why can they not have this incredible experience? And for me, the mountains are, I'm not religious um, at all, but the mountains are where, they're my cathedral really, you know, the, the spiritual house, you know, how I feel in the mountains is the most spiritual I, I get, you know. Yeah. The feeling of complete insignificance yeah. is incredible. And that sounds strange. No. But doesn't. I think I think the you know, you're you're amongst these towering peaks. You feel so fragile, so small, so insignificant. I think that makes you want to grab hold of life even more. So why would why would you deny these experiences to people? And you know, yes, if you go to the northern Corries, they're rammed, absolutely rammed. But walk around the corner, you know, we'll go into the, you know, next valley over. There's nobody there. And 
you know, I think there is there is space for everybody. There is. Yeah. I mean, this is again, we're going to get slightly too deep, so I'll make my point quickly and, you know, you can have a turn and then we'll maybe move on. But, <laughs> you know, we have access, I beat this drum a little bit too much, but we have access to 8% of land in Britain. Yeah. That's what we're allowed to wander about on Dartmoor. I've just removed the right to wild oh, camp, as you've seen. Let's not like, talk about that. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all just, the point isn't, for me, it's all a bit too busy. The point is we don't have access to enough of it. And, and this is something, you know, that I hope you take as a compliment to the foundation, more people need to understand how to use that environment so that we aren't degrading it. You know, seeing the hordes of people walking up and down the highest peak on each country in Britain, like we're causing significant damage there. Travel six miles, you know, in a different direction and climb one of those hills. It's a whole different experience. So we had, uh, mostly driven by my sister, actually, we had a lot of conversations about um, being diverse in our offer um, and, you know, making sure we reach out to as many different communities as possible. Um, and we're by no means perfect. And as you say, we're two white men sitting here talking about this. And um, But we have tried, like Alishba, you know, speaking to her on the course, it informs you in a totally different way, you know. And... You know, as you say, you know, we've got so many people accessing the mountains, but not, but a proportion of them don't really know how to protect them. And on the course week itself, we have an environmental campaigner come in and speak about the landscape, about the protecting the environment, how they manage it. So we're trying to bring that element in as well. You know, it's not just about achieving the summit or the climb or, you know, levelling up your leading. But it's also about understanding the value of the landscape and why we need to protect it. But I think going back to your... I know you don't want to go off on a tangent on I know, this, let's do it. Going back to your point about degrading, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people going up Scarfell Pike. I mean, it was a shock to me when I moved to England. I'd never lived in England before the last three years. I was shocked about the fact I couldn't just walk anywhere. Went to the lakes, I was like... Well, I can't just go up there. <laughs> um, but I think that the fact that there's, you know, motorways up these tallest peaks, and if you think about the big peaks overseas that are just crowded, rammed, I think that speaks to something deeper about the human yes. condition of feeling like whether it's ego whether it's pressure, feeling that, you know, you're only a good mountaineer or you're only a good climber if you've done this peak at this height. And, and you know, our, the question has to be asked in some ways, you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're going to Scarfell Pike, Ben Nevis, Snowden, and you, you're climbing up the the well-worn track, you know, what what are you getting out of the natural environment in that? Yeah, I don't know, it's difficult. I'm not decrying, I'm not decrying, I'm not trying to say that there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, I think it's great. But I think I I have an alternative view on it, in a, not, that's not a politically sensitive way of saying I disagree with you, like, just because we had such different access points to the mountains initially, I used to see, I was that kid, you know, so I did my out-of-bound course and I was like, oh, well, I want to climb Scarfell, I want to go up Ben Nevis because 
that's what you're ingrained and taught to think is yeah. that's the big achievement. But it's like I did a podcast with Dave McLeod, and one of the things we talked about was um, that almost like that there's that unspoken permission that we feel like we need to start climbing new routes. Yeah. And I mean, you take the west coast of Scotland or the northwest of Scotland, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of unclimbed, easy entry level routes that have never been done and will get climbed over the next yeah. hundred years. We sort of we don't look at the gaps in the guidebooks. And I think that's true of everywhere and everything. And I mean, I really could go off on one here and I'll try not to, but I'm a big believer in kind of gentle civil trespass. Yeah. And actually just stepping off the path into the woodland, being very careful where we walk, absolutely not destroying or breaking anything. But actually that feeling of exploration is yeah. so profoundly different to just staying on the path and walking through the pine plantation. And that can be true of any outdoor experience in Britain, whether you're into rock climbing and just think, well, hang on, I could climb, you know, for those who aren't interested in climbing grades, like strangely V-diff, very difficult, is a low grade, but almost any climber could go and climb the first ascent of a single pitch mm -hmm. V-diff. And I did a, um, hosted a night at the Royal Geographical Society a couple of months ago about the future of exploration. It's the RGS. Everyone in that room is kind of into geography, yeah. into exploration. I said to them as part of my closing speech, I challenge anybody in this room to name the highest unclimbed mountain in the world. <laughs> you know, and they could probably all have listed off the 14,000ers. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the 14,000ers. But nobody, not a single person in the audience could name yeah. the highest unclimbed mountain. I'm fairly sure you can't. Has it not just been climbed though? Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's a new one. No, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't no, know. You, that that question is. That I mean, question I'm, is true. I have, I don't know the answer yeah, to that. I mean, I'm not being big and clever. Yeah, I had to Google it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but my point is, I'm not being very succinct. My point is, we just view this stuff as that's what we have to go and do. That's what's been done. That's what yeah. we're allowed to go and do. But actually, I think there are more unclimbed mountains in the world than climbed mountains. Yeah. You know. It's just reframing, completely reframing how we view our outdoor experiences. But it's also more difficult because I think I've been conditioned from growing up with my dad that you, you know, the exploratory, the first, the kind of wild um, climbing experiences are to be the most valued ones. But they're also the most difficult ones to do because it takes confidence it takes um knowledge and ability um which is hard to do and hard to overcome um so i suppose that kind of does you know cause lots of people to go with the most climbed and most traveled and not step off the beaten track because stepping off the beaten track is really hard yeah for a lot of people i just love for people to like people who love going up Penavan or Snowdon, and I should know the new name for Snowdon because we've decided we're using the Welsh ones now, which I fully yeah, support. Which we should definitely Yeah, understand. I just can't yeah. get, I need to work on that. Yeah. But um, there are so many more beautiful mountains in Wales than yeah. Snowdon. Yeah. Go and climb that instead. Yeah. Anyway, we're off on a tangent. Totally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love a tangent. Yeah. Um, I mean, this isn't very... Um, clever interviewing but there, there is a couple more are a couple more things I guess I'd like to ask you 
Just one more thought on on that tangent, just to finalise off. I suppose, yeah, we're sitting here saying, oh, you know, go go somewhere that no one else is. But if they don't, if they want to climb Snowdon, that's fine. Do you know what I mean? That's that's like fine if they if they're climbing. Yeah, but maybe they just don't know. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the difficulty is maybe they just don't know that the what else is out there. Well, exactly. I think that's it. Is I don't have any problem with people doing that. I think this is quite a strong view, but a few sacrificial mountains in Britain that do look like that and are that degraded is probably better for the rest of the area around it because we're just sticking the kind of the weak... heavy trespass on that, yeah. Yeah. But actually, uh, you know, people listening to this, for example, who are probably a bit more switched on to this idea of going out and doing something interesting, like... It's just sort of encouraging them to say, if you do want a more um, isolated wilderness experience, it's significantly easier to find than you might think. Yeah. I find it, I would find it really exciting when I take a client's out and I do something I've never done before. Because yeah. we're all having that experience together as well, which is, is incredible, you know. Anyway, we're way off again on the yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Matt. No, it's good. I, I like it. Well, just one funny point. I don't know if because I've got to be in my mind about this, but um, it's just funny given that we've had this conversation. I got a one-star review for this podcast on iTunes the other day. It's the first one in a long time. And somebody wrote, um, used to be good, but is now silly, woke nonsense. And I just thought, <laughs> I'm onto something. If somebody started writing that, it means I'm going in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't please everyone. But no, just back on, you know, you're clearly able to talk about it quite well. Like, on the subject of your dad... You know, do you think he'd be, this is a stupid question, but do you think he'd be pleased to see you turning back towards the mountains? And do you think he'd be proud of the direction you're going in now? Definitely, yeah. I mean, he did ask me to take, me and my sister, to take over the business years ago when we were in the Alps once. Um, I just wasn't in the the place uh, to do that. Um, And actually, I think now that I've got my own business, I mean, it's called... Alex Moran Mountaineering. <laughs> so it's not very far away from Moran Mountaineering. And the Martin Moran di- redirects the emails to Alex Moran. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Now I've been careful not to see that. So that's all his emails go to the foundation, Matt, just to be very, very clear. Um, I think he'd be pleased, definitely be pleased um, that I'm, I think he'd be mostly pleased that I've actually found my way a bit more in life. Um, I mean, I've I've really enjoyed the last ten years, and he was definitely proud of, you know, the things I was doing. Um, but I think he'd be pleased that I'd kind of realigned myself, and in a bit of a kind of more focused way. He was a really focused guy, my dad, incredibly focused. So, yeah, I think he'd be pretty pleased about that, definitely. And do you think you've? I mean, I'm clearly just projecting here, but do you think you've <laughs> learned anything through this experience? And in any way, this is a very strange way to phrase it, but in any way, has it been positive? Oh, yeah, it's been massively positive um, in so many ways. It's been hugely negative, obviously, and that goes without saying. Um, but for myself personally, and I think for my sister as well, you know, um, and probably to some extent, my mum, we've learnt quite a lot about ourselves and 
probably less, you know, like more so my sister and me, I think we've, with losing dad, it's kind of made us focus more on what's important in life. I think losing anyone, like you must have felt this as well, Matt, you, you know, you, you kind of go, God, okay, I need to grab life a bit more by the the horns and, and actually get on with it, you know? I think particularly losing someone before their time, which we've yeah. both had recently, yeah. because we're both in our 30s. 36, yeah. yeah you look like you're in your 30s. That was a <laughs> to be careful there. Um, yeah, we, we're too young to have been through that, really. Yeah, I mean, effectively, yeah. But yeah, sort of, we're not, I mean, yeah. I always find that, I think in your teenage years would be the hardest. Oh, God, yeah. I just can't, you know, that would be. But yeah. Has it changed your view? I'm projecting again. Has it changed your view on your own ambitions and expeditions based on the fact that you're now a father? Uh, um, yeah, almost certainly. Um, so my dad managed to square. I probably didn't manage to square, actually. I've read a lot of his diaries and letters where he's having this internal fight between being away and being a father. I found this incredible letter just that he'd written to himself um, from Pindari Glacier, where he now lies, uh, from Pindari Valley. He was in there. And he wrote a letter... um, to himself, basically coming to terms with the fact that he shouldn't do such big expeditions away from home anymore and that I wish I had it with me to read some of the (laughs) quotes out from it. It was incredible. He said, um, he was basically saying that the search for ever higher mountains and, you know, ever more remote places can often leave you feeling quite hollow and he said you know the heather clad hills of home still move my soul as much as they did when i first saw them um but that was in 94 matt so (laughs) he did he had the thoughts but he didn't stop (laughs) it's a hard one isn't it because i got to the end of that greenland expedition last year and i decided i wasn't going on any ever again yeah and I, I decided I was done with it. I had a, ro- a, a ropey moment. That's an unintentional bad pun. But yeah. dangling on a skinny rope, having yeah. cleaned a big wall, I was last one up. Just thinking, I, I could see the rope was wrapped around this flake, and somebody really inexperienced had been up before me. And um, I just thought, I actually don't know how the next twenty meters of Jumaring are going to go. And I had to have a little chat with myself and just say that there is only one option here right mm-hmm. now, which is to cover the 20 meters yeah and i got there and i thought i'm done i've got yeah. a child my wife's pregnant yeah and th- i don't think it was my ego that was taking me in the first place but anyway the point is i got to the end of that expedition and i was in a room in an airport hotel and i turned over and looked at aldo and said you know if someone walked in this room right now and said pack your bags you're going back in for six weeks yeah outside of the fact that her kids i'd just smile and yeah. walk out and go in and it's almost like that cheesy cliche of for me the most brilliant thing about going away on these big trips is coming home yeah and i actually would love to do a series called coming home yeah just about why and what but 
that joy I feel of walking back into my, I'm so middle class and middle aged, but seeing my vegetable garden and my kids yeah. is made a thousand times sweeter because I've just been away doing something hard or scary. Yeah. And I don't know what it was for him and why he didn't stop in 1994. Yeah. but Because he, he couldn't stay away, basically. It's just, it was a compulsion. that It was, an, it was a, like an addiction, really. But I mean, a good addiction in many, many ways. But he, he just loved it. He just loved it so much, you know. So I think, um, I know that I don't have as much focused... Um, sort of addictive drive as he had. Um, but I do still want to do all these things. And I think being a father, to be honest, in a way has made me more determined to do them because I don't want my son to have me unhappy because I won't then give my best of myself to him. So if I'm not satisfying this sounds really selfish, potentially. But if I'm not happy and satisfying my own needs, then I won't be able to be home at night playing with him. And I'll be, I know what I'm like. I just will be, you know, not enjoying family life as much if I'm not, you know, doing what I really want to do in life, you know? Yeah, I've totally failed in this conversation not to talk too much but, you know, there is crossover, so maybe I shouldn't apologise for it. But, like, I remember really vividly when I found out my dad had cancer, he said to me, and he was, a, and I'm, I'm going to be really honest, but, um, cause, you know, don't speak ill of the dead and all that, but dad and I were quite good at talking about flaws and getting over them. And yeah, he wasn't the greatest supporter when I started down this path. He genuinely, he was like, get in the Marines as an officer, go and do something proper. But anyway, as it started to work, he kind of said, no, I was wrong about this, you know, keep yeah. going, keep going. But when they found out he got cancer, he said, um, it's so amazing that you found out what you want to do with your life when you're 25. I'm yeah. 56 and I've got no idea. Yeah. And I just think, you know, it plays into what you're saying. Like, yeah. that's why I can't stop. Because when I'm home, I'm so present and I'm so happy. Yeah. And... You take all that away from me. I won't. I'll, I think you know. Being honest with myself, I think I'd be bitter and resentful yeah. towards my family, and that's horrendous. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. We'll both find out over the next. I mean, I think years. that's kind of what I was getting at, really, Matt. Yeah. Is because, and maybe whether this is a learnt behaviour from my dad, or whether it's actually well, that's nature, nature. I don't know, but I am. Um, I definitely. Now I do feel that, yeah, I, you know, I, to give my best to my family, which I really want to do, um, yeah, I need to be, you know, achieving personally as well, you know, what I'd like to do. Yeah. And I'm conscious of time, but, um, I, you know, you said something earlier around, you know, your dad's obviously he incredibly accomplished mountaineer, yeah. Um, kind of world class in many ways. You said they're big shoes to fill. Like, do you feel a need to try and fill those shoes? So I think initially when he died, potentially. But I suppose they're just I'm too old now to to even consider trying to fill any you know his shoes. I mean, I think he was 
he was so driven from such a young age about it that what he achieved was, you know, I mean, right into his 50s and early 60s, he was still putting up new grade 10 winter routes. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to fill the shoes in the way that he, I don't feel a need to fill his shoes in a way, in the same way that he filled his own shoes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a really bad way of saying that. But uh, I do feel a need to fulfill the things that I would like to achieve in the mountains um, more now than my dad's died. So doing the Island Monroe's Triathlon, it was really, a lot of that was driven by having a son and wanting to make him proud, but also by wanting now realizing that me achieving my goals in the mountains is incredibly important no wrong answer to this either but to what extent do you think that there's almost like a pressure lifted oh master god i I can't believe you said that because that is exactly how it feels um yeah and this i'm glad you said that because this is exactly what i've i've been thinking uh because you do a lot of thinking when someone passes away as you you probably know um, I mean, do you feel that? Yes. Yeah. I feel that I don't have to impress anyone but myself now. I can just... And that that pressure of thinking, well, actually... I mean, my dad was really supportive, but I would often come back from climbing trips and be sort of like really excited about routes I'd done and stuff, and I didn't get much back. I'm absolutely 100% sure that he was proud of what I'd done you know on but he just wasn't the type of person to show it but now that I don't have that pressure to impress someone else I'm just impressing myself that's liberating totally yeah. but there's a really good learning there as pet dads I'm speaking specifically yeah. you know because we're, we're perhaps stereotyping and maybe we both had a certain type of father but like my mum's still here your mum's yeah. still here I don't feel the pressures there that right. I felt with my dad and there's quite a good lesson there because I know I have it in me yeah. to behave like that. I'm really conscious of like supporting whatever my children do, yeah. but not to impose the pressures on them that I felt yeah. as their dad. I think it's uh, it's hard though to, because you're always trying to improve on what, you know, my upbringing was amazing. You know, I've no, I've no complaints about the way I was brought up. But you're always like, okay, well, what, what did I experience that maybe made me have my faults and how can I change them? But I think at the end of the day, well, it's maybe a losing battle because I mean, you can never get it perfectly no. right. And, but I think I definitely feel that I don't want to, like those terrified experiences I had as a nine, ten-year-old boy, I, I mean, I don't want Lachlan to have those. You know, I, want, I want him to come to climbing harder routes. I want him, what I'd love, he might not want to do climbing and that's totally fine. <laughs> but if he's interested, I want him to come and say, dad, can I try something harder? That's what I want him to say. Yeah. And then you can help him. And to then achieve I can that. help him to achieve his goal. Um, I think that's one thing I would, I would take. Yeah, I had a really interesting moment in the summer where we took my, my daughter's a little bit older than your son. She's two next month. And then, we took her to Cornwall and we spent a week down there and I bought her stupid, so stupid. I mean, we got her a little wetsuit, which was definitely the right thing to do. She's yeah. obsessed with the water. 
but I bought this little bodyboard. Yeah. And I love surfing. It's one of my great passions. And I really tried for about five, ten minutes to get her in to come and play on the already broken baby waves, and she just wasn't interested. Yeah. She wanted to throw stones in the sea. Yeah. And I was a bit grumpy. I was like, just get on the bloody bodyboard and yeah. have a play. Like, you'll really love it. Yeah. Didn't say that to her. She's no, one. That was, an, that was an internal. <laughs> yeah. Thought. And it just, it was. And it sounds so stupid probably to people listening, but I just had this quite pivotal moment where I was like, hang on, I've got this tiny little adventurous person who wants to run around in a little wetsuit, yeah. throwing stones in the sea for five hours. Like, that's enough for now. Yeah. Let her fall in love with this place. Let her fall in love with that sun between her toes feeling and the yeah. cold water and the rest will come. Yeah. And I realise it's because... On that exact same beach, I was made to jump off the cliffs into the yeah. sea when I knew the tide wasn't right yeah. and I did hit the bottom. Oh, my God. And no secret <laughs> as to who made me jump, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, God, history repeats itself. Yeah. I've become that person. Don't become that person. Yeah, no, totally. And it's really, when you love something so much and so deeply, you kind of want everyone else to, and especially your your son or daughter to really love that as much as you do and yeah that that causes the worst you know the worst to happen which is trying to force them to love it which is going to turn them off isn't it? totally yeah so anyway right we could ramble for ages um i'll start to draw it to a close so go for it yeah. well no i am going to do i'd normally do this in the postscript chat but i think um, you know, we've talked about the foundation at the start of this podcast for yeah. quite a long time. And um, I think you should tell us how we can help and what we should do now before we end it. Yeah, so this is definitely really important to talk about. <laughs> um, my sister will kill me if I don't mention this. <laughs> um, no, we need to, um, you know, we we want to grow um, in the, in what we can offer, especially the long-term offer to get these young people using the mountains as safely as possible, um, you know, and respecting the mountains as much as possible. So in order to do that, we need, um, you know, donations, uh, which is, you know, I'm going to just come out and say it, we, we need money to, to work. Cold you know? hard cash. Cold hard cash, yeah. Um, we've been incredibly lucky. And I just want to say thanks to anyone who's supported us in any way, because, you know, we're, we're in our third year now and I, I'm, blown away we're all all of the six trustees were overwhelmed with the support so yeah thank you and if anyone's listening to this and would like to support us that'd be great but then the second thing really is i'm sure there's lots of people listening who work with young people and i probably listened to us talking about the foundation and god you know and said you know i know someone i know a young person who would benefit from this um so if you are one of those people then go to the website, email us and nominate that young person because, you know, it could be a real life-changing experience for them. Perfect. Yeah. So, two close. Yeah. I always ask people the same two questions. You probably know that. I do know the questions. So you've cheated. Well, I tried not to cheat, but I haven't thought about it too much. Okay. What scares you? Are you going that one first? That's not what I expected. Um... I think if you'd asked me this a few years ago, I would have said, nothing scares me. Would you? No, not nothing, but I didn't have any real, I didn't value much in, you know, I didn't have, I didn't value 
much. I mean, obviously, like, I valued my wife and I would have been scared to lose her. But as far as big fears, I didn't value anything so much as I do now. So I suppose now what scares me is is not achieving what I want to in life um, and not achieving the goals that I've set myself. Which is what? The goals that I've set myself. Yeah, and I don't mean necessarily, well, unless the answer is running a certain marathon. But No, um, I suppose the goal, the immediate goal would be to be in the mountains as much as possible, uh, guiding, instructing. That's my job, it's my full-time job. But then also, I do have lots of things I want to do physically myself in the mountains. So, you know, you know, just being the best I can be in a, in a mountain environment, I think would be the goal. Um, but also being a good dad, you know. Because, and those two things are, they are, they're compatible in my mind. And I think they have, for me personally, they have to be, both have to be together. You know, if, if, if I'm not being one of them, then the other one's going to suffer. If I'm not being a good dad, I won't be able to achieve what I want to in the mountains. If I'm not achieving what I want to in the mountains, I feel I might not be a good dad, you know. So. <laughs> Let me know if you make it work. Um <laughs> I don't think anyone makes it work, Matt. I think <laughs> we just kind of get, sort of find a way through it. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> what brings you hope? Oh, it's going to be cliche. It's going to sound cliche coming from me, but it's definitely the young people that we have in the world. I mean, they're written off all the time. You know, they're always on their phones. They're just obsessed with social media. You know, they are lazy. They complain. You know, they've, you know... But I think they've got enormous pressures on themselves. I think, I think this generation, the last two generations probably of, of young people, they've never had so many pressures, um, whether that's around image, you know, the way they project themselves to the world, um, how they see other people. You know, you, you and I must feel this. I, you know, you look at Instagram... And you feel like, oh God, everyone's just doing stuff all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, in the current climate as well, you know, uh, across the whole world, there's a huge amount of pressure. Opportunities just aren't there. So, but they're amazing. Like the more time you spend with young people, the more you realise that they're just amazing. You know, they, they've got all these pressures on them. And so so many of them are really you know they're they're just really embracing life and really you know wanting to make the best of what is a, a tough world so I think that's what gives me hope definitely and that's why I don't want to stop working with them I might be leaving teaching but I'm definitely not going to stop working with young people because they make me feel young again <laughs> <laughs> young and hopeful yeah young and hopeful yeah <laughs> Ace we'll leave it there thanks very much nice thank you Matt Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. You can get in touch at matt at terraincognita.studio or on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. And finally, please do leave us a review on iTunes. They really help us to reach a wider audience.